Well, hello, all you spooky friends out there. We are <laughs> we are deep in the middle of uh, in the middle of horror fest uh, with a bunch of insane people running this podcast. Uh, apparently, uh, I don't know what you guys are up to tonight, but if you're if you're here and you're listening, you're listening to horror fest with on Phantom Talk uh, with me, the wise sage gosh, and of course the expert in all things horror. Al Red Lanyard. Al, Al, how you doing out there, man? Um, I'm I'm doing great. All you spooky friends. How are yeah. How are you, Josh? I just thought that was a good way to open it up, man. I thought my my uh, I, 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 since we're kind of retiring uh, some things, I thought I thought the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would probably be my last good morning, good afternoon, good evening when uh, just simply because that's probably uh, the last good morning, good afternoon, good evening was before I ha- I watched those movies. So yeah. I thought that's a good time to retire. So let's just say hi to the spooky friends out there um, because <laughs> we're in spooky season, man. We're like, we're right in the midst of it, man. I mean, like, are you, uh, this is, this is Christmas for you, man. Are you getting, you getting hyped? You getting your plans together? You, you getting ready to have a good time on Halloween? Ah, uh, uh, dude, it's going to be, it's going to be wonderful. We are in the, we're in the thick with two C's of spooky season and I'm, um, I'm enjoying it. It's, it's been a good year already. Yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, I, I, it's it's been pretty fun uh, at the uh, place I work. We uh, I, I walked in uh, this past week, and and my boss had set up a nice little area with just uh, some really what he considered the best horror movies. And I, I think you probably would have agreed. He had the Friday Thirteenth on there. He had uh, Halloween on there. He had some of the Stephen King movies, Pet Cemetery, stuff like that. Uh, and I saw that I was like, all right, we're, we're here now. We've turned the corner. We're, mm-hmm. we're in, we're, we're, we're on the downhill slope, uh, to, to Halloween. And, and since we're on the downhill slope to Halloween, we've, we've, we've had, uh, if you've been listening to Horror Fest, we've had, um, Exorcist, which led to a very deep, uh, deep discussion on, on, on demonology and ethics, uh, and, uh, which is kind of a very, and that movie's kind of, kind of, you know, I mean, it's, it's a horror, it's a horror movie and it's, it's, it's worth watching, but it's also kind of depressing. Then you got Conjuring, which led to, uh, more ethics than demonology probably, uh, in Conjuring. Uh, although that movie, I would say, as far as horror movie goes, is probably a little uplifting, uh, compared to most horror movies. And now tonight, Al, we've got Scream and I know what you did last summer. We've put these two together and they're just. Well, I mean, they're just a barrel of fun, right? I mean, that's that's essentially what Scream and I know what you do last summer does, correct? I mean, I mean, they took, I mean, they just took fun and they threw it in a barrel and they say, "Here, here you go. Here's here's all these here's all these bodies of these dead teenagers. Just, <laughs> just have a ball, baby." Well, you know, I mean, I, I know you're, I know you're kind of you're 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 kind of having some, you're kind of making fun there, and I get that. But here's the thing, though, Al. I mean, these were the movies that, you know, I mean, if 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 you watch this movie back to back with, say, you know, Exorcist, you know, I mean, like these are these movies have co- completely different tones, particularly Scream, uh, mm-hmm. which has just a really kind of a slapstick tone to it almost. Um, I mean, at one point, I mean, literally calling out horror movies for following a set of rules. So, you know, just the, I think that's the first question to start here, you know, like when we get to 96 and 97, you know, I mean, you know, we kind of get to this moment where horror movies aren't, uh, they've kind of turned a corner from, you know, being, uh, you know, like, 
super scary and super, you know, uh, realistic and things like that. And we get into this mode where it's almost, you know, we're going to these movies to have, have a good time. It's more just being scared. We're going to, we're going to laugh and we're going to have fun with this. Um, you know, how did, you know, a scream does that really well. Um, probably a little better than I know you did last summer. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, a scream and, and it's, it's tonal shift Al. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great point to bring up. Um, so, so whenever, um, I'm asked, and I'm asked this a lot whenever people find out I'm in a horror movies. Whenever I'm asked, you know, if I had to, to take the horror genre and categorize it or, you know, or just kind of chop it up in some way, you know, would I do it by, like, subgenre? Would I try to do it by, like, certain directors? Would I try to do it in a more chronological way? Um how would I do it? And um, you can't talk about Scream um, and by extension, I know what you did last summer, but um, especially Scream, you can't talk about Scream without talking about the weirdness that is the transition in horror from the 80s into the 90s. Um, and that's one thing. The reason why I bring up the categorization is that Horror is semi-easy to categorize and divide up chronologically by the decades, really until you get into the thick of the 90s. Um, because the 90s is where, it, is where it gets weird. Um, you know, you have um, a pretty good buildup from, you know, the 60s kind of focusing on you know, the slow burns, you know, the, um, you've got the Hitchcockian approach to, to a lot of horror stuff. You go into the 70s, 70s is where it focuses more on on some of the gore. That's where you have um, the early, early kind of, kind of prototype of the slasher flick. Um, you get into the 80s. The 80s is pretty well divided into s s supernatural stuff that's where you see kind of the rise of the b movie um of horror and then on the other side of it you have really um the 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 christening if you will of what slasher flicks are they really kind of find their feet and find um, um and find their place in the 80s you get to the 90s um and don't get me wrong I think the 90s have a lot of great horror films. Um, I really do. I think it's a very underrated decade of horror. Um, but in particular, when you get into the slashers of the 90s, um, you get some weird ones. You get kind of a sequence of things that don't seem to kind of line up with each other in a way. Because you go to the early 90s and you have... Um, you have the original Candyman. And Candyman, to me, kind of signifies kind of the end of the old age of slasher flicks. Um, Candyman has a lot of the aesthetic, has a lot of the themes that were kind of um, made concrete uh, within the slasher flick um, in the 80s and late 70s. 
Um, but then it starts to toe more into the line of urban horror. Um, you could have the argument that um, um, it basically sets the standard of urban horror. Um, it starts to lean more into the supernatural side that had kind of been started with things like Hellraiser, with things like um, kind of the evolution of the Jason and Freddy films. Um, and then you get to uh, the 90s after Candyman. Um, and you have this interesting shift, both in tone, as you're saying, Scream has a very self-aware tone, is how I like to say. It's self-aware that it's a slasher film. It's aware of what the subgenre in the industry is. Um, it calls out the rules. It calls out the trends. It, it kind of pays homage to the history while still kind of um, becoming almost a satire of the genre. But something that you see, which is really interesting with Scream and is really interesting with a lot of these films that came out in the 90s, was you get a shift in slasher flicks where it takes a turn from the supernatural element of slasher flicks, things where you're, you know, you have Jason as a, as a super zombie, you have uh, Freddy as, as basically a tulpa that's fueled by our fear. And you get into the nineties where you have scream. I know what you did last summer. You, you had the people under the stairs. You have all these significant horror movies that deviate from the supernatural trend into trying to be a bit more grounded as far as having the antagonist be more human, be more tangible of a threat. And um, you see that a lot in Scream. You see that a lot in I Know What You Did Last Summer. And while those movies definitely represent a change in tone, you know, you can um, laugh a bit more, you can poke fun at the industry a bit. I do think they do some really significant things as well as far as changing what it means to be a slasher villain or to be an icon of horror and it kind of changes um, a lot of the other um, um, tropes and things you come to expect from these films as well so it's a really interesting transition it really is yeah scream in particular uh talk about what you talk about the end there about changing how we view um the icons of horror you know the interesting thing about scream is that the the killers are not great at what they do in a lot of ways i mean i think that that, that might be putting it mildly um they get lucky sometimes <laughs> it almost seems like uh with, with with what they're able to pull off um because of the idiocy of, of the characters around them in some ways uh, which might be almost a uh a tell uh or Wes craven and kevin williamson kind of poking fun at at the idiocy of most horror characters uh, which is one of the things that makes sydney stand out uh, so much and we'll talk about her in a bit but like when, when you look at you know when you compare jason and freddie uh, even even before you get the supernatural thing or even michael myers before you get the supernatural thing you know they're very efficient in what they do you know i mean you know, Michael Myers in particular, you know, pulls off some very interesting, uh, you know, efficient kills in Halloween 1 and 2. When you get to Scream, 
you know, I mean, I was watching this with with uh, Jenny, uh, you know, admin admin Raven here, and she's just laughing at the killer at many points. You know, I mean, he's he's running into chairs. He at one point, like, you know, he gets his head knocked off by a uh, by a refrigerator door opened at one point, and just you know falls down. You know, is uh, at one point Sydney sweeps the leg on him, uh, like straight out of Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got this. So, but one of the interesting things about this, and one of the things you know, as someone someone who's watched a lot of horror movies, I want to ask your opinion. Does that add to the tension of the of the sequence? Um, because a lot of times, like particularly when, <laughs> particularly in anything anything involving Jason past Friday Thirteenth Part Two, okay, when Jason shows up, you just go, okay, that guy's dead. Um, screams a little different because they they kind of they, they kind of tug at you a bit, uh, and I know what Dylan Summer does this too. But Scream does it a little better, where it's almost like there's a sense um, you can get away from the killer. You know, you you have it. You have an, the killer's uh, not super powered. Um, the killer's not everywhere at once. You know, there's there's a way that you can get past this. Um, does that add to the tension a little bit, Al? Um, I think it kind of depends on the viewer um, who's watching it. Um, I think it kind of depends on um, your headspace when you go into the film um, in a lot of ways. Um, um, Because it's it's kind of odd because um, you take a movie like Scream, and as I said, Scream is very self-aware. Of, of what it is. It's very self-aware of the slasher films that came before it. And so it sets it up in that, hey, you know, like the general beats, you know, the slasher is going to show up, you know, um, you know, they're going to chase down their victims, you know, there's going to be um, these killings throughout the movie. But they do change it up in that, as you said, you know, um, that they are great at what they do. It doesn't feel as if, you know, um, it doesn't feel as if um, you're hiding a Dark Souls boss as soon as as soon as you enter a scene. You feel like um, you get the feeling that it is a human being chased by somebody else who is also just a human. Um, now you can take that as you know it becomes more funny, it becomes more slapstick, and that's definitely true. Um, also. In addition to that, if you go into it with a mindset of, okay, I want to try to put myself in the victim's shoes and really try to see these events through their eyes, um, which I don't suggest to do with every film, for sure. (laughs) But um, if you do that with this one, then the, the chaos of the scene and the the sloppiness of the scene can almost have the opposite effect where it it feels more real that way. Um, A lot of, um, if you're a true crime nerd like me, um, you've read some of the retellings of some of the survivors of serial killers from the past. And um, a lot of those encounters, I mean, they don't tell the story as, you know, he was this, this big, huge guy, and he was everywhere at once, and I, um, and like it was impossible to escape. A lot of the accounts of these real life horrific things 
honestly line up a lot more with what you see in Scream. Um, so I think it kind of depends on the headspace when you're in and, and how you're approaching these films, which again, I don't suggest to go into every horror movie trying to co-experience something with the victim because that can get very draining over time. Um, and it can, can put you in a bad headspace for sure. But um, yeah, you get a, a little bit of both, I think, which I think is kind of representative of what horror is. You know, different types of horror, different types of scares and stories aren't going to affect everybody the same way, which I think is kind of uh, one of the more interesting and interactive things about the genre is that you kind of explore and kind of find the things that have different kind of effects on you. Um, and I think Scream is a really good um, example of that. Yeah, I, I I think I think that's a a, a good a good solid answer, and and I want to come I want to come back to Scream, and I want to I want to talk, um, you know, about a, a lot more on what uh, what Scream does, particularly like I said, and 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 as regards Sydney as a final girl and things like that. But I want to shift to I know what you did summer real quickly, um, because these movies, although they have a um, have a very uh, similar. Uh, aesthetic to them i think they're very different in in how they approach that aesthetic um the similarities come from the fact that the screenwriters the same on both of these uh, kevin williamson wrote uh i know you did some and wrote scream uh one of the things i found out in research was that he actually wrote i know you did last summer first right and nobody wanted to film it mm-hmm. and so he went and so he was angry because or it seems like it seemed like he was like a little upset about uh about the fact no one wants to do slashers anymore so he goes and he writes this movie that's kind of slasher derivative and knows it's a slasher movie um which i think is the big thing about scream a lot of slasher movies don't know their so scream knows it is. scream from the beginning knows this and and trust me we're going to talk about the rules uh here in a bit but what i know he does somewhere is, is it's different in the sense that it's a morality play in a lot of ways um you know there's a there's a whole uh, th- there's a whole concept of doing the right thing here, um, or the consequences of not doing the right thing. Al, I don't think we've really discussed uh, uh, too much, at least uh, in in our in our horror um, in, in our horror fest stuff about the morality plays in um, uh, in in horror movies. Um, but I know he does some, of course, is very kind of on the nose here um, with with what happens. Um, is is the slasher film a, a place where we can where we can study morality in some ways? Mm. Yeah, um, I think it can be, um, and I think I think the answer to it is kind of tied up in on the history that you alluded to earlier. Um, this was. Um, the writer's f- first attempt at trying to sell this kind of slasher film. Um, and again, this kind of screenplay was a lot more grounded, was a lot more um, tangible in the fear it offered. And where the slasher genre was <laughs> at the time um, was at a very d- d- different place, as I've said. Um, you've had um, some precedent for the more grounded kind of slasher antagonistic um, villain with um, like uh, people under the stairs, 
even though that isn't exactly a slasher film. But, um, I mean, you, if you look back on, on the more recent slasher stuff that came out in the 90s prior to um, Kevin Williamson trying to shop around this screenplay for I Know What You Did Last Summer, you have, like, Jason Goes to Hell, right? You have, <laughs> you have um, Halloween Part 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, where you start to get into, oh, there's actually, like, a <laughs> there's actually like a a coven of enchantresses within Haddonfield that are <laughs> that place curse of the thorn on <laughs> on Michael and that's why he's able to do these fantastical things. You get these weird entries into the slasher genre that do not allow a lot of breathing room for for introspection, right? <laughs> um, at this point, you know, they're tossed on the screen and they're eye candy. You know, you watch and you're just like, oh, I wonder what Jason's going to do in this one. You know, I wonder how creative um, Michael Myers is going to be with the, you know, the shed outside and everything in it. And you don't have a lot of room for thinking about it critically. And don't get me wrong, I love Jason Goes to Hell. I think that's a super fun film. But it's not one to really put your thinking cap on for a lot of the themes in that. Whereas with I Know What You Did Last Summer and also with Scream, I think you're really missing out on a lot of what the films have to offer if you don't at least try to think about the plot and the themes and the subtext somewhat critically. Um, You know, you bring up, um, you know, are slasher flicks a good place to think about ethics and morality and things like that? And I think... There's two answers to that. The first easy answer is, well, yeah, of course, because um, it deals with death and it deals with evil and uh, this idea of struggling against evil and having survivors and having victims. Um, So in a very quick, concise way, you can say, yes, of course, because whenever there's thoughts of death and inflicting harm upon others, you know, you kind of have to at least think, oh, well, they're the villain, they're the bad guy, you know, and in your heart of hearts, you should be rooting for the victims or at least for, you know, whoever the narrative has identified is the final girl. Um, if you want to think about it a bit more, though, it it turns the focus a little bit away from just a simplistic idea of good versus evil or or a lot more aptly for i know what you did last summer this idea of of the innocent versus the guilty because for most of the narrative of i know what you did last summer it is framed as these stupid drunk teenagers they killed somebody and they covered it up even after they realized the guy was alive still. And so they, and so, so they killed him a second time, essentially. And, and they cover it up and they try to go on with their lives. And, and you think it's a narrative about, okay, this is not just a slasher coming back to get them. This is their subconscious. This is their guilt eating away at them. Um, and then the narrative does some other things and you start to talk about other areas of morality. You start to think about, well, 
what about revenge? How does that play into it? Not just revenge or being hit by a car and being abandoned to die, but revenge on what the killer does to to his daughter's fiance. You know, how that part of the narrative plays into the killer psyche and how it can be related to what's going on in the minds of the victims with air quotes um, and how that all kind of plays together. And it gets a lot more complicated there. And I, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it, I think it's good to, to turn away from a horror movie and have these ethical dilemmas and ethical questions to kind of ponder over. Because again, at the root of horror, or at least it was supposed to be at the root of horror, is this idea of fear. And fear is a universal experience for everybody in some way or another. And you can't think about fear and think about vulnerability without at least thinking about how ethics and morality play into that and play into those experiences and how accurate these stereotypical roles can be. So I think, um, again, depending on the slasher flick, I think it can be a great place to talk about um, those kinds of things, just kind of depending on the narrative and depending on the intent behind the writer and the director. Well, I think, I think the narrative of I know what you did last summer is uh, particularly good for looking at morality um, simply because it's, it's a, it's a morality thing where part of the fear is, um, is that this one mistake uh, could almost happen to anybody. Um, now, of course, there's a lot going on there with, you know, the, the concept of drinking and driving there. Although the movie's very cl- clear about telling you that it's not a drunk driving accident. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Freddie Prince Jr.'s character, um, you know, is, is not drunk when he's driving here, um, but he is distracted. And that's, and that's the thing. That's something that could happen to anybody. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, so the movie asks you in a lot of ways to relate to these people who do this, really horrific thing um but it's you know it, it's it's almost like a it's 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 almost a, a callback to what hitchcock used to do and by the way is it fair for me to compare i know you last summer to a hitchcock film not at all okay but there is very similar concepts to what they're doing particularly with uh protagonists here because protagonists of for example psycho uh for a good portion of that movie is Norman Bates. He's he's your protagonist, and you're wanting him to get away with things um, because you think it's his mother doing these things. So then you're like, okay, he's covering up for his mother. Who understands that? You know, I mean, everyone would understand that. Everybody would cover up for someone they love. Um, and so I know Jesus Summer has this similar thing where it's like they're covering up for each other because not not only do they not want their own lives ruined, they don't want their friends' lives ruined. That's the whole point of it, and that's one of the reasons why uh Julie Julie James ends up in this really uh Jennifer Love Hewitt's character really ends up in this rock and hard place because even though she's the most moral of the four, you know, at the same time, you know, she 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 knows there's re- repercussions here. Now, and, you know, obviously if you've seen this movie, uh in my opinion, the so, some they 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 take some leaps in my opinion to tell you 
that that there's going to be very serious repercussions uh, for hitting this man. Um, you know, uh, I I think they're, you know, uh, Freddie, but Freddie Prince Jr. as I as I sent to you, um, uh, Al, uh, in a in a text on uh, on Discord. You know, uh, they just kind of sweep all of that under the rug so they can have Freddie Prince Jr. just say it's manslaughter. And then no one really questions that after that. Um, <laughs> but 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 they but all the same, all the same, the fears there. And then what it is essentially what I know it did last summer does really well um, or attempts to do really well. I think there's some elements of the movie that fails, uh fails fails it a little bit where it's it's kind of shooting for the moon and kind of landing among the stars a little bit because what it's attempting to do is kind of tell this tale of like failing as an adult essentially because all of them leave and then they all suck at their lives after being an adult essentially so like you know we hear that you know julie is about to get kicked out of school uh, Sarah Michelle Geller's character, you know, has gone to New York. He's come back. He failed miserably. Uh, Ryan Felipe is, you know, <laughs> a failed quarterback, uh, essentially. Uh, and then uh, Freddie Prince Jr.'s character um, is he's fulfilling, you know, I mean, he's he's basically kind of fulfilling a path, uh, you know, his his destined path. He's a fisherman now, and that's one thing he didn't want to be. And so. You know, there's there's this failure that happens, and and it's it's almost like the movie's attempting to kind of have this not only this morality play, but also this examination of attempting to leave and failing miserably at that and having to come back home. Which I think is something that I, once again, a lot of the Gen Xers and a lot and you know and, a, and really a lot of millennials, you know, one of the reasons I think this movie's lasted as long as it has and why it's getting a a remake and stuff is because that's something a lot of young people in the post baby boomer age can relate to um, mm-hmm. this idea of going out, you know, shooting for your dreams, going to college and then failing miserably at it. Um, and that's the thing that happens a lot. And so this movie kind of tries to analyze that as well. Uh, I don't think it, you know, I don't think it kind of reaches where it wants to with that. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's much better at being just a straight slasher movie, um, but it does, it does attempt to reach for that a bit. Um, but with, in regards to, you know, you talked a little bit about um, about revenge here. Um, you, we're, we've got we've got a movie coming up later that's, in my opinion, very much based off of a revenge fantasy. Um, but uh, the the vengeance that happens with I know what you did last summer, um, you know, also is is part of the mystery of the whole thing. And one of the things I think Scream and I know what you did last summer do very well is add this element of mystery to their movies um car movies you know we did a friday 13th you know last uh, last year um which has a mystery as well who's doing this killings although in my opinion that mystery comes out of nowhere unless mrs Voorhees, you know is is on steroids or something, you know, what he's able to pull <laughs> off in that movie. Uh, but there's a, that, that's almost more of a shock value thing. Whereas I think Scream and I know Just Summer almost have a whodunit nature to them. Um, mm-hmm. Because there is a question of like, who is doing these things? Um, you know, uh, Al, when, when you're looking at slasher films, you know, do you think, do you think the concept of mystery and whodunit, do you think that's something that's important to slasher films or do you think it's just something that's kind of can be tacked on there? Right. Well, that's a very good question. Um, um, 
And there's a lot to say about that point. Real quick, I do want to point out um, college may have been a very different experience in in 1997 than when I went to college. But if Julie had only been there for a year and the dean was already threatening, this is your last shot. Like, I attended all four years of my undergraduate program with guys who were constantly on academic probation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, what they, what the, I, I did, I did kind of, I wondered for a bit if she would, because I, I went back, and I don't think it ever mentions it, but like that's, tie, listen, the easy way to tie that plot hole up, Al, is to be like, well, she's on a scholarship, but they never mentioned that. And here's no, the thing, most colleges I know, as long as you're paying them, they have no problem failing you, okay? Oh, they don't care. So, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I'll and never I, forget. I agree. Yeah, it's a good thing to point out. No, no, um, no. Um, I'll never forget. Um, I won't say any names, obviously, because that'd be uncool. But uh, one of my favorite um, guys I met in college, um, I took uh, the general education uh, requirement for New Testament because um, <laughs> it was a Christian school I went to. So I was in my I was in my New Testament class. And um, and the professor walks in, and he sees the guy who's seated at the desk beside me to my right, and he says, "Hey, man," and and the and the student says, "Hey, Prof K, how's it going?" And and, and Prof K is just like, "Pretty good." Fifth <laughs> time's a charm, right? <laughs> and I was just like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 so don't let the pessimism um, of academia in 1997, um, (laughs) don't allow that to trick you out there because colleges will take your money for as long as you want to fail. Like, so, so don't worry about that, everybody. Um, But but to your question, because that is a really good question. Um, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, So I think that, and I know I have like a graduate degree in psychology, this is not backed up by any kind of evidence whatsoever, but I'm going to make this statement. I think that trying to figure something out and trying to solve some kind of history, whether real or created, I think that is just one of those inherent pleasures that human beings have. I really do. I think that in some way or another, um, human beings are naturally are naturally are naturally trying to to find something or discover s- something. Um, and you see that all the time in slasher films. Because, no, not every slasher film has a kind of, you know, Agatha Christie, who'd, who'd done it um, kind of storyline or element to it. Um, a lot of times it's it's hardly even a plot point on who the killer is in the slasher film. You just have to know that there's a guy who's trying to kill somebody. Um, but even if it isn't present in the narrative itself... Horror fans will try to insert something into it 
for them to figure out or find out or debate or or solve some kind of mystery with the movie, even if there is no mystery to be found. Um, you see this all the time. And I don't think it's insidious um, at any point uh, by any means, but I do think at some point it kind of takes away from movies a lot because perfect example of this, okay? Perfect example of this happening in, in, um, in Asher films. I'm going to use Halloween as an example. Because I love Halloween. I just watched Halloween Kills um, a couple days ago. It's fantastic. Everyone should go and see it. Um, Halloween. Halloween drops in 1978. Mm-hmm. Halloween drops. The whole idea behind the slasher in Halloween is that you don't understand why he's doing stuff. And you don't need to understand because he just he just has an internal motivation to kill and cause harm. And that's his whole deal. And people, even Halloween fans, people, for some reason, hate that about that movie. <laughs> to the point where you get to 2007, you, you get to almost 30 years later, you get Rob Zombie showing up and he's just like, what if we try to pinpoint exactly why he's doing this? Like people will create a mystery within these films, even if there isn't one there. Um, So I think that's kind of lended itself to these franchises like scream, like I know what you did last summer that have that kind of element to them because it's naturally attractive to people. People want to engage in that way. They want to figure something out. They want to feel smart. Um, they want to be able to say, ha-ha, I, I had it the whole time. That's why, you know, Scream got three seasons of a TV show. That's why I Know What You Did Last Summer um, got two sequels that, in my opinion, it did not really deserve. Um, and now it's getting a reboot with its own TV show. Um, people want that. People want that out of um, their stories. Um, again, to the point that they'll create it even if it isn't there. So the fact that the writer did the work for the audience um, in that way, um, I think that's really has lent itself to the success of these films. And I think in in some ways it kind of led to kind of the decline of the slasher um, a few years after these movies um, because you almost got got writers trying to tell people too much. Um, in some ways um, and give them too much information and that kind of retroactively killed that kind of engagement. Um, but, but yeah, I went, I went a bunch of places for that answer, but no, that's, no, 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 that's no, no, I, no, I think, I think you got a point as always. Uh, um, I know our, our motto at fan correspondence is phantom is for everyone, but Josh's personal motto is anytime you get the trash Rob Zombie, go on and do it. Uh, <laughs> so, so I was perfectly fine doing that. Uh, but the, but the, the, yeah, I agree. There, there's certain, there's certain places where um, you, you can do a little too much, obviously. Um, but you know, the thing is, is like screaming. I know what you did last summer. The, the mystery is almost, um, well, I mean, not almost. I don't know if you could do the movie without the mystery, because the because there's there's stuff that you're told very early on in Scream, for example, uh, Sydney's mother's death, um, the fact that she has testified against someone and put them in jail, um, 
that right there, there's no point for that to be in the movie if there's not going to be a mystery tied to it. And so, so, uh, and screen, and so that, that kind of leads to where, because I, I want to go back to Scream real quick. Uh, you know, and still kind of staying in this morality kind of thing. Okay. So watching Scream now, uh, as opposed to watching it in 98 or 99, whenever I first watched it, but watching Scream now in the 21st century concept, um, I don't know if there is any way that I would not know that Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich's character were not the killers in this movie. Um, because one of the things that I think Scream does, you talk about interacting with, uh, with Scream, uh, in a, you know, in a, in an ethical way or, or in a morality way. Okay. Which I think a lot of people would kind of laugh at. I, I, I seriously, I, I think a lot of people would laugh at that, um, with Scream because Scream in and of itself is, is a hard, is a, is a slasher movie laughing at slasher movies. And I get that, but there's some things they do, particularly with the character of Sydney, um, that I think deserve a lot of attention. And I, one of the, re- one of the reasons I wanted to lead this one is because I wanted to ask you this question because Sydney in a lot of ways as a final girl seems like a very basic final girl. Okay. I mean, she seems like, you know, it's just, you know, she's, you know, she's the pretty, pretty one, you know, to, to quote the, I mean, to, to, to quote Jamie Kennedy, you know, she's, she's the virgin at the beginning of it. You know, that's like one of the, that's one of the plot points, right? I mean, is you know, is that she won't go all the way for boyfriends. That's a plot point in the movie. Okay, so literally, they're they're putting blaring final girl, you know, headlights above Sydney at the, from the beginning of this movie. But what's interesting about Sydney, and one of the things that they do, um, they do, kind of dig into, maybe not as much as like they probably should, but is that Sydney is still recovering from a trauma, and the interesting thing about this movie is that both Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich and Jamie Kennedy are so like cold about this trauma that she's gone through and cold about the things that are happening almost to the point of like a, it almost seems like a sociopathic response in a lot of ways, you know, um, that it's almost hard not to see one of those or, or see those three as, as the killers. Oh, Jamie Kenny's not a killer. He's just stupid. But like, but the other two, you know, I, it's hard not to see them as the killer because of how horrible they treat Sydney to the point where you have Skeet Ulrich at one point, you know, just basically saying to Sydney, you know, man, it's been a year. How long are you going to react to, you know, how long are you going to mourn over this? And like the movie is like, well, you know, she was raped and viciously murdered. You know, I mean, that's, that's basically how this starts. You know, and it's like, how long are you going to mourn that? Well, I don't know, Sydney, probably, I don't know, Skeet, probably the rest of my life. You know, that's probably how long I'm going to mourn that. Mm-hmm. And like the the coldness of that, you know, and and the fact that the, that seems like everyone uh, is just ignoring this traumatic experience in her life almost seems to be telling you that, yeah, these two people are psychopaths. Okay. These two are, are people that, that just have, have, you know, have, have no concept for human life at all and 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 i wondered you know because because you we've talked a little bit about this before but do you just with your background do you think scream is is trying to say anything about uh you know traumatic experiences or or past trauma or i mean i mean they they throw around i mean sydney throws around the term post-traumatic stress disorder in this movie so 
do you think they're do you think they're trying to deal with that or it's just kind of a background thing that Wes Craven's kind of thrown in there? Or and the other question is, do you think they do a good job of dealing with it? Mm, yeah. Um I think that um I think that that plot point, um, I think it does serve, um, it serves a couple of purposes within, uh, within the story, um, and within, on the movie, because, um, as you talked about, it does kind of help give the backdrop of, of the narrative as far as, hey, there's like, um, there's like an air of uncertainty, there's an air of history here um, that's going on um and so that definitely adds to it and helps establish that um early on in the movie um and i think it is um, a really big part of of sydney's um not only her character uh, but also just how she how she experiences things um within the film um i was watching when I watched it um, this past week, I watched it with my wife, and um, and we were watching it, and it got to the point where school um, got canceled and stuff, and there was a curfew. Um, uh, there's a curfew in place, and the very next thing, like ten seconds afterwards, Sydney gets invited to go to a house party. And, yeah. and it's just like at this point, you know, there's been there's been several deaths like this. <laughs> there's yeah. been several deaths and several sightings of confirmed killers, um, and and um, and the very next scene, you're just like, hey, let's throw a party. And of course, when you watch it afterwards, you know, you have the context, you have the inside of just being like, oh yeah, well, of course they don't care. Like they're the ones who are doing the killings. But even even with that insight, um, my wife and I, when we were watching it, she was just like, "Look at all of these kids who just don't who just don't give a shit that their friends died." Like, like look at all like there were there's a lot of people at that party, like just just hanging out and having a good time. Um, so I think. I think Wes Craven was really intentional about that. And I think Wes Craven was really intentional about a lot of this stuff and how it related back to what Sydney is experiencing and back to, to what she's been through. Um, because as anybody who's worth, you know, a 10th of their weight um, in salt as a psychologist or as a counselor will know, um, trauma has long lasting effects on people and trauma will alter your brain chemistry it'll alter the neural pathways within your brain it'll alter how you reason and how you come to conclusions and how you process information um and it will shape who you are and how you think and how you feel um and it can form resilience and it can be channeled and reshaped through um, through therapy and through healing of course but um it leaves its impression and i think west craven was really intent on showing that 
Sydney is the survivor. She's the final girl, and there's a purity about her. But that purity, whereas traditionally that'll be associated with her sexuality and her virginity and things like that, the purity with Sydney is much more focused on the fact that she's almost the only person in this entire town with any sort of empathy. Um, she's the only one with any kind of sensitivity to, to what has happened. And I think that's really hit home by the fact, you know, the entire high school is at a house party a couple of days after um, their classmates and friends are killed. Um, it's reinforced by um, this curfew being put in place that everybody just kind of flouts. It's, it's emphasized in the contrast with, as you say, <laughs> Skeet Ulrich just being like, well, when are you going to get over, you know, the death of your loved one? Um, and, and Sydney just being like, you know, these were real people who died. This was a real thing that happened to me. And I think Miss Craven was being really, really intentional about that and being really intentional in showing the resiliency and the strength within Sydney in spite of and also in some ways related to her trauma because it's easy for people who have been traumatized and who are processing it to view themselves as being uh, as having something wrong with them and being changed and being broken and and the writers and directors really kind of turn that on their head because they show that in spite of all that trauma in spite of all the horrible things that she's already been through and all this uncertainty that she's she's the survival girl she's she's the beacon of of purity that's going to overcome all this evil and all these villains um not because of some antiquated idea about sexuality but because she shines through she empathizes and she experiences um the weight of things and the raw emotionality of things and so i think it was a really interesting use of that um now as far as how good of a portrayal it was um i always hesitate to say almost any depiction of trauma or trauma survivor is just great all around yeah awesome <laughs> very good stuff um, for a couple reasons uh one because people respond to trauma very differently um, not everybody will experience it the same way. Not everyone will have the same reactions and the same healing process as everybody else. Um, so it's hard to give an endorsement uh, when there's a risk of saying, you know, this is a one size fits all response to trauma and healing and things like that. Um, and two, just because, you know, it's unavoidable in a way in the horror genre specifically in the slasher genre but it's hard to endorse using trauma as a plot device or a storytelling um, device um i think in a lot of cases um, it's unavoidable and in a lot of cases it can be used to tell very good very very affirming stories um, it can be very inspiring and very encouraging, but um, um, there's always that chance. 
<laughs> that it's not. I've seen it horribly abused and misused before. So um, I'm, I'm always hesitant on that side as well. But um, especially in the continuum of slasher films that Scream can be compared to, um, I think that it's it's a very respectable um, portrayal of, of trauma and ways to heal and overcome it, for sure. Yeah, that's, I think that's a that's as good an answer as anyone could give, honestly, uh, because you know it's it, it's difficult. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think it is difficult to um, you know discuss uh, and and to discuss whether or not uh, trauma is is done well because we all, uh, to your point, have different relations to trauma. I've told you before that you know it took it, it it took me a while you know after after my my own mother passed to be able to watch things where loved ones were lost. I mean, something something is like, you know, as so, most people would consider like it, you know, to be like, you know, as something as innocuous as that. But it just, you know, it just took me a while to, you know, get through all that, you know, because of course it definitely deals with <laughs> childhood trauma, obviously. Sure. Uh, but, but you know, to, to kind of switch gears a little bit, um, you know, because I, I know you did that summer, obviously is dealing with a traumatic experience, but it's it's morality play also has a has another contingent to that kind of like to discuss with you um and it's a contingent really um one you really don't see in screen that much uh but with i know you did that summer it's there's a lot of uh class issues and i know what you did last summer mm. in the sense almost uh the you know it, it it has it has a guy with a hook going around killing people and I'm still not totally sure Ryan Phillippe's character isn't the antagonist of this film um, because he's the one that really drives all of the conflict in the film, uh, you know, really until he until he dies uh, in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of want to ask you a little bit about this because the the movie is very clear on the fact that he is the rich one. He's the one that, you know, when, when they go to visit him, he's, he's, he's got literally has a mansion on the beak. Okay. Like it's, it's like on, it's, it's on the nose. Okay. And he's the one that is the driving force behind everything that's happening here. Um, as far as the idea of, you know, well, we've got to do something. My future cannot be destroyed because this, you know, it does. They won't believe, uh, that I wasn't driving. There's alcohol over the car. You know, we have to kill this guy because I can't let my future be destroyed. Um, you know, I don't want to, I, you know, we, we've we've already been too political on these podcasts out. Okay. <laughs> we've, already, we, we've already, but let me rephrase. I've already been too political on these podcasts out. Um, so I don't, I don't really want to go there. Okay. Um, but do you think there was something being said here about the class dynamics, uh, particularly with, with the fact that you do have, you know, essentially what you have in this movie is a rich white boy, you know, entitled, you know, spoiled, um, you know, with, with, you know, it's probably never had, I mean, literally has never had a problem in his life. Um, and he kills a fisherman. That's that's essentially what this movie does, um, because he's the one, of course, that, you know, throws. I mean, yeah, I mean, he knows he he knows for a fact the fisherman's alive when it goes into the water, when he goes into the water. OK, so 
Do you think there's something being said there, or am I giving I Know What You Do Last Summer a little too much uh, credit here and uh, saying that they're trying to analyze the uh, the class discrepancies and the class differences uh, in uh, in uh, this little uh, eastern seaboard town? Right. No, I think that there um, is definitely an element where uh, where class interaction um, is at play um, in this film. Um, you know, you have it as early as you have it as early as and in a few different ways within the first few scenes um, where, you know, how how his character talks to Max, you know, he's just like, you know, he calls him, um, I forget what he, <laughs> I forget what he calls him exactly, but it's, you know, a dig that like he's gonna stay and work the fish yards and things like that. Um, and, you know, he's, he's spoiled. He has very low impulse control, which is something often seen um, among the higher class for sure um, is, is a lot of the reason why they got to where they are um, as a very low impulse control. He, he, he hits a fisherman or he causes the fisherman to be hit. The guilt is, um, it was probably primarily on him for acting a fool and acting all crazy. Um, and then you see another, another class, based interaction as well because max comes driving down the road and he talks um to julie and they have a little exchange you know and he says you know oh daddy's gonna be mad about the car and stuff you know suggesting that you know it's it's barry's dad's car and it's it's the family's property and things like that because they're um, a significant family um and then ray comes up and you get the idea throughout the movie for sure that Ray, you know, also comes from more humble background and stuff. Um, you find out explicitly when he's back at the fish yard. Um, but um, Ray comes up um, and tries to talk to Max. And Max basically calls him a class traitor. Like yeah. he says, he says, you know, you almost had the rich boy act, you know, down pat. Um, and, and basically calls him a class traitor and, and it's interesting to see that interaction because on an intimate level, you have it as, you know, um, he thinks he's a class traitor. He thinks he's forsaken his background. He's ashamed of his background and he's tried to, to buddy up with, um, the rich people in town. Which um, afterwards you see when uh, when Barry gets hit by the car um, later on in the film, he quickly accuses Ray of being the killer and points out uh, that you know you you aren't one of us. You came in here trying to be um, friends with us and friends with the rich kids, things like that, and basically confirms what Max is saying um, earlier in the movie. And so on an intimate or personal level, you get that kind of interaction, and then on a more on a more story-based um, scale, you get that, you know, it's Barry who acted a fool, who caused the accident uh, that hit this guy. And then you also have Ray also being held accountable by Max showing up 
and saying, even though not being privy to what happened, Max shows up and says, you're just trying to be just like them. Um, and on the level of the story, it shows that in a cast of flawed characters, um, you start to see that Ray's flaw is that he does not see the flaws of those around him. And he tries to surround himself with them. And he tries to, to become the rich people that he sees in the higher class and things like that. And um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of energy in that scene. I like that interaction a lot uh, between Ray and Max. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about that. I think some of it, I think you can't go too deep with, um the idea because when the slasher does show up um he he kills everybody um without any kind of class discrimination or anything like that he kills max when max is just you know a dock worker at the fish yards um so i think if they were trying to hammer it home a little bit more then you might see um the killer have a bit more um be a bit more elective with who he kills so i don't think that was the overarching um story they were trying to tell but i definitely do think that there's elements of it there for sure yeah yeah i don't yeah i agree i don't think it's overarching but i I do think it creates kind of a a nice base for things um and of course and also kind of plays with your uh perspective or attempts to play with your perspective on like well you know is is ray you know, the, is he the killer? Because, you know, everybody else is having all this stuff happening to him, you know, Ray's not seemingly having this stuff happen to him. Yeah. Um, and, and he is kind of the outsider, so to speak, as much of an outsider as Freddie Prinze Jr. can be, uh, in, in any movie. Um, I just love the fact like this movie and she's all that came out a year between each other. And one of them, <laughs> he's like, uh, he's a poor fisherman. I don't know what he's like, you know, He's he's the valedictorian and the star athlete at the school. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's just uh, that man. I, yeah, Freddie Prince Jr. We should do an entire podcast on him alone. Um, but but I do think um, that 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 class concept is is very important. Uh, and and I and I think in a lot of ways the the movie, uh, you know, of course, you know, I what I was talking. Uh, normally what I tell people is, is, you know, this is Ryan Phillippe's, this is what he does in movies, right? I mean, he's, 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 he's played entitled rich white kids in everything from this movie to cruel intentions to the Lincoln lawyer. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's kind of his thing and he does it well. Um, he's got a great sneer to him. Um, but there's, you know, for him, you know, this, this, there's his flaw, you know, if you want to talk about race flaw, his flaw is this idea that, well, you know, I'm going to be able to fix this, you know, if I just, you know, put my head down, you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm he basically thinks he's unassailable. Um, and and I think a lot, of, I think there's a sense of a lot of that comes from his upbringing because, you know, he's never had anything bad happen to him. And so, you know, you know, so sure, you know, we're just going to go and threaten Max, you know, even though we have, and that's, that's who's been doing it, obviously, because, you know, I'm untouchable, essentially. Um, and that, you know, and and that's you know the the fear in this movie, uh, and, and and I know you did last summer. Like I said, is this fear of like, it's not just fear someone's trying to kill you. It's the fear that your secrets are going to be exposed. Um, that that is the real the real scary part of this movie. And of course, then it really 
dives into like stalker territory and things like that. Um, I, you know, I, I, I want to discuss final girls here. Um, uh, to kind of, uh, kind of switch off into something else. You know, we discussed final girls a little bit last year. Um, but this year we have two really good examples of it. Um, and we also have two really good examples of it, uh, from, from my, uh, formative years. Um, because mm-hmm. Nev Campbell and Jennifer Love Hewitt, uh, in 96 and 97, you know, were at the top of just about anybody's, you know, uh, crush list, you know, I mean, they just were, um, and they, they have interest. they have very similar backgrounds, uh, when they're, when they're coming up in, in these movies, because they're both from a, a TV show called Party of Five, um, that I promise you is a horrific, horrible TV show that stayed on the air simply because of how popular these two movies were. Um, that's the only reason, in my opinion, because these, that no one knew what that show was until these two got on onto these big screen uh, slasher <laughs> films. Um, they're very different in their approaches uh, to, to being a final girl. Uh, Julie, it seems is a little more proactive. Um, she's attempting to figure out, uh, you know, why this is happening. She's trying, what she knows what happened. She's trying to figure out who did it, uh, what they actually did, uh, who they actually killed, um, you know, trying to figure out the background, of all this. Um, whereas Sydney, to your point, a little more of a traditional final girl, um, where just the fact that she is the best person in the movie is what propels her forward. Um, I know your final favorite final girl is more than likely Laurie Strode, um, who is the, you know, prototypical, uh, maybe not the first, but the, the queen of all final girls. But talk to me a little bit about how, how do Sydney and, uh, and Julie uh, measure up as final girls. Yeah, man. Um, so um, I talked about it um, actually just before we recorded. I talked about it um, a little bit in the podcast. Um, I know. Uh, I think Jacob's in the is in the recording room with you, and he had said he uh, he kind of wants to do this as as a topic for a video or a podcast next year. Um, but I'm just going to talk about it now because it, it relates very well to what you just asked me. So we're going off the cuff. Um, but, um, I think that, um, when you talk about final girls, you talk about the history of slashers. Um, there's an interesting difference you can draw um, um, between kind of the first generation of final girls and the following generation of final girls, right? And I think it follows both from the roles they play in the film. It follows a little bit from where pulp culture is at the time, um, from the intentions behind the movie, whatever. Um, You go back to... You know the originals. You go back to to Jamie Lee Curtis um, and Halloween. You go back to um, I forget the actress's name, but you go back to Sally um, in Texas Chainsaw. And there's their survivors, right? They're survivors of their films. Along with their survival, there is an overall tone of of t- 
desperation and hopelessness as well. You see this um, hardcore with Sally at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where she's just covered in blood, trying to climb into a truck bed, speeding away from this lunatic with a chainsaw. And she's just, and she's driving away and she seems to be safe and she's just screaming. She's just screaming her lungs out because um, she's terrified. Um, you see this as well in the original Halloween. You have Jamie Lee Curtis um, just on the floor, huddled up in almost a fetal position. And before Dr. Loomis even goes to check on Michael's body outside, Jamie like knows he's gone and she's freaking out. And there's a hopelessness to that. There's, there's strength and there's resilience in the fact that they survived and they either escaped or they put up a fight or a little bit of both. But there's also this rigid hopelessness within their survival. You go into the next generation of final girls, which I think is kind of spearheaded, especially um, by Sidney Prescott and Scream, uh, um, and also by Julie. Um, and um, I know what you did last summer. But um, as you said, they take a more active role in it, right? Um, especially with Julie. She she puts on her detective hat and she goes to figure out what's going on. Um, you get to you get to Sydney and scream. By the end of the movie, she's stabbed and shot like both of the killers. Um, she's taken her survivability into her own hands um, and really became the agent of her own survival in that story um you know and and um i know she did last summer um there's julie and she's active in the last fight she gets a little bit of help from ray which is fine but um she's also you know in the thick of the struggle um and you see the shift from that hopelessness and the desperation into a new kind of of final girl that's more um that's still scared and still terrified but is more active is more proactive is more strong and resilient as the events are happening um and i think it's an it's an interesting change in contrast there now um i think it really speaks volumes to the acting ability um of jamie lee curtis where when Halloween 2018 came out and she didn't miss a single step in the pop culture change and she just embodied this new kind of resilient, proactive survival girl in that film. And I think it speaks volumes to her and her ability to act and her ability to really understand the character to show both sides of the coin there. Um, that's why she's the queen. That's, that's, why she's a, that's why she's a queen of horror. But, um, yeah, I think these two films really show that, show that change. It shows that shift in what a final girl can be uh, in horror films, which is really interesting. And I, I think it's something that's not really talked about a lot um, in horror, just how much the character and the role of the final girl can, um, can be fluid in that way. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah. I, I don't. I don't want to uh, 
suggest in any way that Nev Campbell or Jennifer Love Hewitt uh, are are anywhere near the actress Jamie Lee Curtis is. Obviously, uh, you know that they're they're on different tiers. Nothing against Nev Campbell and Jennifer Love Hewitt, uh, but you know it's just it's a whole it's a whole nother level with Jamie Lee Curtis. She's a she's a she, she is the queen uh, to your point. Um, but I do I do find it interesting that you you do have these these two movies back to back with with final girls that are um, very similar, both in, you know, and, and, and how they look uh, pretty similar in their presence on screen. Um, you know, pretty similar in uh, really in, in, in I, I, Nev, Nev Campbell's probably a slightly better actor than Jennifer Love Hewitt, but very similar in how they, how they uh, approach the material. Um, and, and I do, you know, it, to, to, I, I just, I just find that, uh, just uh interesting the the compare and contrast between the two uh there's really it'd be really kind of hard to try and pull that off because they are functioning very similarly um but i you know it it's it's interesting you know uh and and i know i don't want to give away too much because one of the things is and i don't know your opinion on this movie um, but I think Scream Four is one of the most underrated horror movies ever. Uh, I love Scream Four. I think it's fantastic, and we're getting ready to get a, a Scream Five or a Five Cream. Uh, I really wish they had gone with that that uh, thing. Uh, but uh, but uh, but we're getting ready to get that, and so you, we you know we didn't really see Jennifer Love Hewitt uh, evolve too much. She has this movie. She has a vastly inferior sequel. Um, that's just you know just not good in my opinion. But we see Sydney. Uh, she's she's on you know she's she's on the trajectory, uh, a similar trajectory that Laurie Strode is on, uh, in the sense that now, particularly in Scream Four, and it looks like in Scream Five, uh, she's the she's the godmother of the thing, um, where she's like, kind of uh, telling people what's going to happen, um, kind of preparing people for things. Um, not, not necessarily on the level that Laurie Strode is because Laurie Strode, you know, basically turns into, you know, a Mad Max style survivor. Um, but, but Sydney Prescott is in this mode where, you know, and even in the trailer for this new one, she's like, I always have a gun on me now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do find it interesting, you know, her, her trajectory and how, how, how strong it has been, um, because Nev Campbell doesn't really do anything except those movies now. I mean, she hasn't really. She doesn't yeah. do much, yeah, hardly anything. You know, she's she she shows up every now like she showed up in Mad Men for a while. Um, you know, and she shows up to do, you know, some some stuff every now and then. But that's kind of her her thing. Um and I just I just kind of find that interesting. I, I do wonder here if in like, you know, maybe another twenty years or so, if we're gonna be looking back at Sydney Prescott uh, in a similar way that we'd look at Laurie Strode. Uh, once again, not to, not to really compare them, but to, but they're they're doing different things and they're uh, and really carrying this franchise on their back. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, maybe Courtney Cox might have some uh, some some say about that as her role as Gail Weathers. But it's, I think, to your point, it's really Sidney Prescott's you know uh, story in a lot of ways. Um, we got a good discussion. I want to ask you one. Last question. This might be the most important question I'm going to ask y'all. Are you ready? Oh, I, I was born ready. Hit me. Okay. Could a garage door really do that? Mmm. Mmm. You know? Do you think a garage door could have the power to crush 
what appears to be the spinal column uh, of a hundred and ten pound woman. What do you think? You know, a garage door of today that was made by the the weak, soft hands of a millennial. <laughs> Um, would not be able to do that at all. But probably. that garage door is probably crafted by the war-torn, bloodied hands of Gen X. <laughs> I believe it really infused that extra power. No, I like um, I like that you bring that up because I had an epiphany a couple of years ago when I watched um, Scream again for the first time in a few years. And it it rung free a memory in the back of my mind because um, when my family and I first moved to Kentucky, we had a garage with like a garage door for the first time. And, um, and my mom who um, I've talked about before, both on here and in some of the horror fest stuff I've written. uh, My mom is a really big horror fan. Um, My mom was terrified of us trying to like rush under the garage door as it, as it was starting to close. And I was always just like, well, it's, it's a garage door. It's fine. Like, I don't know why you're so stressed about the garage door. And when I was watching scream again, I was watching it and I totally had the thought of, Oh my God, did my mom watch scream in the nineties <laughs> and just like was traumatized by the horrific <laughs> powers that a garage door has <laughs> and it left her scarred for years <laughs> about the things it's it's a possibility i think it's i think it's a real possibility there's there's a part of me well if it's for you bring that up because i my memory and I've, I've told this story several times about any really just about any time i bring up scream i complain about that um, because I think it's one of the stupidest things I've ever seen in a horror movie. Um, and the reason I say that is because when the first house I ever lived in, we had a very similar, uh, we, we had a similar um, garage door, same same concept. And one time it raised up, and for whatever reason, my, my mother had a toy poodle that was, Al, I promise you, 15 to 18 pounds, okay? I mean, we're talking small, all right? And this garage door, for whatever reason, she got on it on the perfect way, and it picked her up, and she got stuck between the garage door and the frame of the garage like that. And, I mean, it it hit her, okay? And we lowered the garage door, and she got down and was angry and bit my dad. Uh, you know, but other than that, <laughs> no, no harm whatsoever, okay? Sure. So, like, literally the first time I'm watching this movie, I'm like, I don't think a garage door would do all that. Like, I feel – and what's great is I wonder if Wes Craven, like, is is almost messing with the crowd because he goes out of his way to show you the garage door, like, sparking, you know, and being, and like, barely able to pull this off, okay? Like, like it, it, it can barely lift this woman, you know? Um, and, like – and so I almost wonder if, like, somebody was like, Wes, listen, this, ain't, this is not – this is not – something that could feasibly happen and he's like i know but we're just gonna have some fun with it (laughs) every time i watch that scene i just to me it's the most ridiculous scene they need to do mythbusters on it Uh, i don't know how you would pull that off they need to but that's that's the mythbusters i want to see is you know could you actually 
get yourself killed by a garage door. Um, you know, if, you know, if somehow your head got in between the garage door and the garage door frame, uh, that that's, I, I want to know that. Um, but yeah, no, that, that to me was the, uh, was the most important question asked. Actually one more, one more question. Okay. You talked about horror icons. I think I know your answer to this, uh, ghost face or fisherman hook man. What's the more, what, what's the scarier icon? What do you think? Um, Who's a scarier icon? Well, I mean, well, or better, or you know, whatever, whatever adjective you want to use. Okay, I got you. Yeah, um, I think the more iconic um, character um, um, is probably Ghostface. Um, yeah. Or the more iconic um, persona, I guess, because it isn't just one character, but. Um, I think the more iconic choice um, is definitely Ghostface, but um, I mean, I mean the Hook Man has just the best internet meme about him. Um, it, yeah. <laughs> it never fa- it never fails to make me laugh. So, that, so that's that says a lot. For me. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, 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 I think I agree 100% with everything you say there. Um, yeah. Hook yeah. man, car hand, hook door hand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, okay. Well, I, I don't know if there's a better way possibly to end this podcast <laughs> than that right there. Uh, Al, listen, man, I, as always, I appreciate uh, the, your your time and your expertise on this. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're just having a, a good time, uh, thinking way too deeply about these horror movies and, uh, you know, and I, and I hope you're having, I hope you're having as good a time as me, Al. Oh, uh, 100%. Uh, and I'm super, um, and this episode was great. Um, I'm super excited for the next episode we do. I will say that it is, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but it is, it is one of my favorite things in yeah. this world so same. i'm super excited for that same i agree i agree so so yeah uh so yeah uh definitely uh as always you know we got plenty of things to plug on here definitely uh, go on patreon um you know uh go yeah go on patreon and vote uh we do have uh several horror movies up there um that are definitely um uh, you know, uh, th- any any of them uh, invites a lot of discussion. We'll just put it that way. Um, <laughs> but go on and vote for your favorite. I think American Werewolf in London's the the top vote getter right now, um, which, which is, is which is wild. That is <laughs> that, that is the that dark is, horse vote. The idea that that's the number one right now is is funny to me because you know that is the least known of the movies we got there. Although that's that's a great movie to discuss to uh, discuss, man. I mean, I, I would one. have no problem. You know, going an hour, hour, 30 minutes on that movie. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but but go, go on Patreon and vote. Um, you know, go visit us on Facebook. Visit us on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Uh, you know, we're all over the place. Uh, we're on YouTube. Al's got some great videos up. Al, you put out a, you've only put out one video so far, right? Um, I've only put out one. Um, at the time we're recording this, um, I have a second one in the works. Um, it's going to be talking about... Um, the new John Carpenter um, timeline of Halloween films and kind of um, and kind of what it could mean for the future um, of horror 
reboots and remakes. So that'll be um, a very enjoyable one. So that's coming this week. Awesome. So yeah, we got we got some great stuff there. Um, you know, and and we're like I said, we're we're in the the throes of horror fest. So just uh, keep up with us. Uh, you know, and uh, interact with us. Let us know what you want to hear. Let us know what you want what what you want more of. Um, I guess you can let us know what you want less of. Uh, but you know, if you're if you're that kind of person, uh, but definitely let us know what you want to hear. Uh, interact with us. And as always, before we sign off, we do like to say, "Phantom is for everyone." Uh, even if I jokingly said it's not for Rob Zombie fans, I guess even Rob Zombie fans just deserve fandom. Uh, you know, I guess, but, uh, but yeah, we definitely sign off. Uh, we're here for, uh, to, to let you know, uh, that, you know, whatever fandom you have is valid and, uh, that's always going to be our, our mission point. And, uh, that's always what we're going to be trying to do here as always, Al, thank you again. And, uh, y'all have a, have a blessed, uh, day, evening or night, wherever you're at. Cowabunga.